And let's see if we've got this recording here. I think we do. Okay. Let me just bring you up to speed real quickly on what Ted has been preaching us through uh, the past few weeks. And, uh, and I'll just read what Ted wrote and what's here in your worship guide. During Advent and Christmas, we are studying the words of the prophet Isaiah concerning the coming Messiah. Isaiah wrote roughly 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel as it so clearly and repeatedly speaks of the coming life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And here was the schedule then before us. Uh, Beginning in November on the 25th, we heard from Ted on Christ the Son. And then we considered Christ the shoot. Uh, He was both the shoot and the root of Jesse. Uh, from whom, of course, David was born and from whom Christ descended. Then Christ is revealed to us in Isaiah 40 as the shepherd, the shepherd of his people, uh, his covenant people. And then uh, Christ is revealed to us in Isaiah 42 as the servant. Then in Isaiah 50, he is the student that he might also teach us. And then we come to here Isaiah 35 and consider the success of our servant Savior, the Lord Jesus. And then next week, really to circle back and consider that the, the main reason that Christ appeared as man here, it's his sufferings. And he came to suffer for us and in our place. And so Chris Taylor from Bentonville will be preaching for us next Sunday. But this morning, let's consider the success of our servant Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's read the passage together, Isaiah chapter 35, and then let's bow for prayer. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, and it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing 
shall flee away. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to your word with humility and readiness to learn, eager to know what you reveal to us through these pages. Be with us now. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 35 is the last chapter of the first section of Isaiah. If you're going to go across that entire book and break it down into its parts, you'll have part one all the way through Isaiah 35, and then you go into part two. There's sort of a junction between parts one and two. But this, these first 35 chapters, in this, this part of the book, Isaiah is taking a great deal of time to lay out Israel's guilt and coming judgment for their covenantal disobedience. Israel is not in a good spot. They've already gone through a civil war. Isaiah is ministering in the southern section. There are two, uh, two, of, the, uh, two of the tribes remaining here. They've already seen the ten northern tribes go into captivity. And now they're hearing that their fate is going to be similar for their disregard and disrespect to the Lord and His covenant and His promises. And so they are not receiving good news. Not for the most part. But before the exile takes place, before the king of Assyria comes and escorts them out of their homeland to a land they don't know, they receive some very precious promises. And that's what's given here. The book of Isaiah is a message to kingdom people that disobedience has consequences. But even in judgment, God is merciful and ordains for redemption and restoration for all who look to his son, servant, savior in faith. Isaiah here has the role of covenant prosecutor and establishes Judah's guilt when rightly accusing the people of hypocrisy, greed, self-indulgence, and cynicism. All distinct sins found in different places as Isaiah lays those out in these 35 chapters. And so today's sermon is one of hope, even when facing the certainty of judgment for failure to live righteously. Covenant people in Isaiah's day needed direct warnings, and we do today as well. But if we receive with hearing ears the bad news that judgment belongs to the disobedient, we can delight that blessing and hope belongs to the penitent who looked to Jesus by faith. And this chapter is the end of that first section, and it concludes with a note of hope. And that's our context in the large scale as we look at Isaiah. But let's look into the details of the text just a little bit. This is a poem. And this is a poem that the people might have, had, having heard this from Isaiah, seen it either in his writings or heard it in his preaching, they could have taken this with them as they left here and went to Babylon and would remain there for some period of time because it gives them the forward look that one day they'll return to the promised land. So as Isaiah 
begins to give them this hope and he lays this out in chapter 35, he's going to do something that's common in the prophets. He's going to speak of mountain peaks as it were in the future. So he's standing on a mountain peak, but looking forward to mountain peaks of time yet to come. So there are going to be a couple of mountain peaks. There's the He's standing here describing the mountain peak, as it were. You can't see the valleys down below as you stand on the peak of a mountain and you look across and see the other mountain peaks. You don't see the valleys below. You're not describing those. You're describing the mountain peaks. And so he gives this mountain peak of the fact that they will return to their homeland. But then he describes another mountain peak, one that's yet to come, which Jesus himself said was fulfilled in his time. And that's found in these verses here that the eyes of the blind would be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. But that's not all. He's not done. There's another mountain peak. There's that one off in the far distance and another valley in between. And that one in the far distance you find in that verse 10 where you think there could be gladness coming, but this is Indescribable. This must be a day yet future where gladness and joy have been obtained and sorrow and sighing flee away. That's the period of time we find ourselves in. We're in that valley. You and I, as covenant people, walking through this barren land, we're in that valley now where looking back, we can see a couple of those mountain peaks, those prophecies that were fulfilled, where the exiles return into their homeland, we can look back and see that mountain peak where Jesus opened the eyes of the blind and healed the lame. We can see those. But now we're back in, here we are traveling through the valley. That mountain peak yet before us is that great coming day when there is no darkness, all is light and glory and grace. That's yet to come. So this is a bit like, this, this uh, chapter here is a bit like traveling through, going through life is a bit like traveling through dense fog, really, isn't it? And, and you can't very often see very far ahead. I don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring, and I don't think any of you do either. But this is a somewhat of a clearing of the fog, as it were, to open our eyes and let us see a bit of the great heavenly kingdom yet to come. And so we can see it here. Then the fog clears a little bit by the grace of God and opens our eyes. And that's what I would like for you to think of this morning with me uh, as, we, as we consider looking, as it were, through the fog. Life may be hard for us at times as it was for God's covenant people then. The trials we experience may be punishment for disobedience or it may be communal suffering inflicted by the sins of others. In any circumstance, we must remember that we are pilgrims in a weary land, and heaven is our destination. This is a clearing of the fog that we might see heaven, as it were. And such glory that awaits is the outflow of the work of the servant, Savior, our Lord Jesus. So there are three things I just want to lift from the texts this morning. Looking at a couple of verses, almost hopping back and forth just a bit through the verses. But three things I'd like for you to consider with me. The first is this, as the fog clears and we look forward to the glory that awaits, we learn there will be no more desolation. And then I want you to consider with me that there will be 
no more deformity. And then third, there will be no more despair. Those are the three points. There will be no more desolation in that great day that's coming. Secondly, there will be no more deformity of our bodies in that great day that's coming. And then third, there will be no despair. Let's just read those verses again, and then let's dig in just a moment. So beginning in verse 1, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. But this is those who are returning. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. This is, this is a direct and intentional description of the earth rejoicing and blossoming again. No more desolation. Let's admit, this planet is inhospitable today. It really is. No one gets out alive. There is a virus or a cancer cell or a bad heart valve near us or in us. Wells run dry. Blistering polar vortexes take their toll and man-made chemicals are in our water. Or so most of us fear. If the earth wasn't an enemy, we would be our own adversaries. But this wilderness in which we live is the result of our disbelief in the garden called Eden when we fell back there with great-great-grandpa Adam. And the language of these verses says that the scope and scale of the Redeemer's work is a recreation. That's why you're reading words like blossoming and fruitfulness and abundance and glory and that you find that in, these, in this passage here. So it, Christ is not simply coming to do a, a pleasant spiritual work for our souls alone. His redemption of this world will blow your mind. It's going to be unimaginable. The Lord will finish His work in perfection. And so... They're looking forward to just the joy of returning, the Israelites are, into their homeland. And they're thinking of what it can be again when they return. But more than that, we're meant to look forward to that great day when the Lord restores all things. Now we find language like this elsewhere in Scripture. Paul himself seems to almost have this passage in mind when he writes about this restoration of the creation that all things will be made new. Paul writes this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, 
But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, of our bodies. This great redemption Paul is outlining and speaking here is of this entire thing that fell when we fell. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, though we see it somewhat here in Isaiah, we wait for it with patience. So the creation groans with us in this and under this curse that the Lord has laid on it for our disobedience. The, the writer of Joy to the World saw this day coming, and he wrote this, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. I think part of the reason that we're given this earthy language here from Isaiah is to remind us and encourage us and teach us that heaven is a real thing. Um, the, the, the perhaps popular notion, uh, but mistaken, of course, is that uh, once you die and go to heaven, you're sitting on a cloud strumming a harp or, and, and, and that you're sort of uh, semi-ethereal. Now, we're not really given a clear picture of, the, of our state between now and the final resurrection and the final glory, okay? We don't, we don't know precisely what that's like because we bury our bodies here. God alone knows how he uh, keeps us and maintains us in glory and in heaven. But we've got cases where saints were speaking to the Lord. We can read that in Revelation. And they had voices and they could communicate. So there isn't just some, you're not kind of in some fuzzy quasi existence. But your body and mine ultimately is going to be raised at the last day. And we will serve the Lord in a real place and in a real way. So, as we think through this and say there will be no more desolation, yet there is for now. Uh, are, you a, are you a bit despondent down in the dumps because Murphy's Law seems to be so operational? You know what Murphy's Law says? That's just the secular man's restatement of the curse, right? Murphy's Law says if it can go wrong, it will. And somebody said, and at the worst possible time. That's the frustration and the desolation that we labor under now. But brothers and sisters, it won't be like that. Always. There is a wonderful, there is an indescribable day coming for all who call upon the Lord Jesus. And that's partly why we move into the next section as we look at that. Don't despair, but instead strengthen the weak hands in verse 3 and make firm the feeble knees and say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. So there will be one day when there is no more desolation. But let's consider that there is a day coming when there will be no more deformities. And that's what you find here in verses 5 and 6. There is a day coming when there will be no more deformity for any of us. 
As I meditated on no more deformities, it really came to my attention, and then I spoke with a medical professional who confirmed that this is true, but I began to think about that the deficiencies we have in our bodies and our limitations are really just a matter of degrees or on some kind of a scale or on some kind of a spectrum. And, and this nurse that I spoke with said, yeah, more and more in the medical profession, we are describing diseases, deformities, deficiencies, whatever limitations, we're describing those more and more on a spectrum. Because really, you might not be able to tell unless you get close. I'm wearing contacts. I've got a deformity, a deficiency that's a result of this curse. I couldn't fly aircraft for the U.S. Air Force. Hadn't really meditated on doing that at any time. But I, I, they wouldn't let me. I can't see well enough for that. Now, if you take that deficiency and just make it a little bit worse, 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 suddenly now I'm blind and I can't see, right? So all of us daily are dealing with some kind of setbacks, limitations, deficiencies. But one day, there will be no more deformities. So there were two things that I thought we should think of, not directly out of this text, but sort of the Christian response as we realize what we labor under and with is the first is to say, use what you have been given. You may have limitations, but use for God what you have been given. Christ said of a blind man, right, that he had been born blind for the glory of God. So these things that we call limitations, deformities, deficiencies, God in mercy, God in his great grace and for his own glory makes use even of those things. There was uh, a man born in 1942 in Oxford, England, and uh, passed away in March of this year. Well, we're almost done with 2018, but it was 2018. March, he passed away. He grew up enjoying science, particularly physics and astronomy. At age 21... While he was in college, he received the devastating news that he had been diagnosed with ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. And the first doctors to see him and deliver the news to him said, maybe another two years? Uh, make your plans that that's about how much longer you'll be here. But 49 years in a wheelchair... And 15 books later, all academic in nature, he passed away and left a legacy. The man was Stephen Hawking. Though an unbeliever, unregenerate, best as we know, never confessed that there was a God or called upon God to our knowledge. Yet here he was with what we would say are some of the severest deficiencies. And yet he continued to press on and make use of his time. We can all do the same thing. What's the popular phrase in the world today? Uh, your excuse isn't valid, right? Uh, my excuse for not serving the Lord. I'm too tired today. I can't follow through. I can't do these things. We can all 
stop and ask the Lord for grace and strength in our daily lives, regardless of our deficiencies and inabilities. And then the the second thought here is let's not forget those who have some very severe limiting uh, situations in in life and physically for them, okay? Um, The Christian response is to reach out to and assist and help those who have much less or who are severely limited. And there's sort of this back and forth situation, it seems, as I read about uh, certain types of conditions. Uh, I'll, I'll use autism because I know some people with it on that spectrum And I've read on it and tried to understand a little bit more. I don't. Uh, The researchers, those who who call themselves experts, don't. And so there's this discussion. How do we, what do we do? Do we label someone? And if by putting a label on someone, we're just putting them in a box and saying the limitations are the limitations, there's nothing more to do, then we're making a terrible mistake. And as believers, we wouldn't want to do that. But we're going to have to admit as well that someone has a deficiency so that we can help. Okay, so the response here is to graciously read and understand and look into the situation, talk with those who are experiencing what they're experiencing in life for their own limitations, come to know those, and graciously assist in whatever way we can. We don't want to use the label... In order to destroy, we want to use whatever label we use in calling or, or labeling this deficiency in a way that we can help and bless. But the day is coming, folks, when we don't have to talk about the deformities and the deficiencies anymore. Those will be gone. We will be able to serve our Lord in perfect health with all the strength of, of a real body. In a real place. Heaven's a real place. If you could go there now, you would see Jesus himself. He's there. So there, is, there will be no more desolation. There will be no more deformities in this kingdom yet to come by the work of our Lord Jesus. And then last of all, there will be no more despair. No more despair. Verses 9 and 10. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. This is that highway called the way of holiness. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You look through these, uh, this last verse, particularly verse 10, and you find that what's the joy that's to come is actually that there is an end to the journey. The journey ends. You come finally to Zion. One of the reasons we fall into despair or become despondent is because we don't have the hope that something will change or get better. I was once just almost caught by this and almost alarmed, as it were, When I heard a preacher say, perhaps one of the great difficult, not difficult, that's not even the right word. Perhaps one of the great struggles, the the horrible nature 
of eternal punishment, which we sometimes call hell, is that it never will end. So there is no hope. Right? There is no hope if a thing doesn't end, if you can't end a journey. What's there to look forward to? But it says here that eventually they come to Zion, and then that means we eventually come to the heavenly kingdom, Zion. So there is hope for us. There is no reason for despair in this life. There is the best is yet to come. There is something ahead of us. And this objective that's, achi- that's achieved here is, is when it says, they shall obtain gladness and joy. It's as though they had reached out for it. Not simply that it's a result of coming to Zion, but they are reaching out for gladness and joy. You know, that is, that's a fine thing for us to look forward to is the gladness and joy of heaven and to long for that and to reach for that. And we will obtain that. Christ himself, we read in Hebrews and where we're encouraged to be looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So his endurance of the cross was supported by his looking for that joy in the victory that he would gain for himself and for us. And then we see here that despair flees away. Uh, Despair is no more because the journey ends and the objective is achieved and perfection is secure. Sorrow and sighing flee away. To summarize this, brothers and sisters... Faced with dark days, whether of your own making, as it was with Israel here, uh, or the consequences of others' sin or their making, where you will remember where you will be one day and that Christ has secured your path there and your arrival home. This supports us, carries us along gives us life and light as we consider where we are going. One last note. Verses 8 through 10 tell us that there are actually two groups of people. If you intend to reach the gladness and joy ahead and see Christ and find heaven, then you have to take the way of holiness. This is the only highway to glory. There aren't any others. And it's not holy because of your perfection and your efforts. The highway is holy because it is the king's highway to his palace. And he made the way. So I encourage you to be sure you are on his road by repentance of sin and faith in him and his work. Dearly beloved, take my hand. Let's go Together, join me as we find our way to Zion, the city of our God. Let's pray.